Welcome to the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. This summer, we're walking through the book of Romans, taking a master class from the rich and powerful book of the New Testament. Romans is one of the greatest books of the Bible. It is the essence of the gospel and provides the rich doctrine of our faith. Romans was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, and God has used it to change the hearts of men and ultimately the world. In Romans, we see the impact of our sin, which reveals our deep need for God, and then the importance of living out our faith in Jesus today. Whether a lifelong student of the Bible to a first-time believer, this is a masterclass for everyone. Let's listen in. Welcome to church. My name is Chase Baker. I'm the family pastor here at Rolling Hills. And uh, to those in here in Franklin, welcome. We're so thankful that you came to worship this morning as we um, are in our 13th week of our study through the book of Romans called Masterclass. And if you're worshiping with us on, online, welcome. If you're traveling, um, if you're at the beach right now, welcome. And, um, or if you're traveling back from the beach. And, uh, and also to those who are worshiping with us in Columbia today, we're so thankful that, that you're here with us and, and, uh, and what we're, our, our church, we're, uh, we're a church of many locations, we're one church with many locations and Columbia is one of our locations and today you're joining us and we're um, so excited about what God has in store for Columbia as we look forward to the fall where we open up a, uh, a new building um, for our Columbia campus which is a permanent location so we are so excited for you guys but today we're going to be talking about a topic that is in a lot of ways wildly unpopular in a lot of ways it's this topic is counterintuitive to how we view our place in this world it faces resistance and can go against our natural inclinations in fact this this topic infringes on our desires and requires us to give up control this topic also places others before ourselves but I believe that this topic can also offer um, a catalyst be a catalyst for our spiritual growth it can create a depth of our our love for God and understanding his, his love for us and how we love others and also puts in perspective the greatness of God in our lives I think I think if you're like me you'd want to you you're curious of what this is what has such transformative potential in our lives and let me just say that it comes from this single word submission Submission, and immediately there's an uneasiness for some of us in the room. There's an unsettling of us because maybe submission hasn't been a good thing in your life, or maybe you're thinking about the worst of the worst when it comes to submission in your life. This could be an unsettling thing in your life right now. But you know, one of the things I thought about whenever it comes to submission, I thought about my childhood. I thought about wrestling matches with my brothers. I'm the youngest of three. My brothers are giants of human beings, 6'6", 270, or 6'3", 250, like, and then, you, then me, right? And so I really got the leftovers when it came to size in our family. They were football athletes, football stars, amazing, but I would get in wrestling matches with these guys. And you better believe I was scrappy. You better believe I held my own. I still do to this day, by the way. But most of our matches, ended up with me in a headlock or me in a full Nelson in complete forced submission, right? I was forced to submit and forced submission is painful. 
And for submission, you better believe that I'm not willingly submitting to my brothers. There's nobody in here that's willingly submitting to your siblings in a wrestling match. There's no way. But this is not the submission we're going to be talking about today. The idea of submission really goes against the grain of our culture that promotes self-centeredness and promotes individualism. Today, I want to talk about biblical submission. What does that look like? What does God want from our lives? How does God want us to live in the world in which we live with this idea of submission? So before we do that, I just want us to pray over God's word today. Are you ready? Let's pray. Father, we're incredibly grateful for you. And our prayer is pretty simple. May we forever be changed by your words. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's, let's go with this running definition of the word submission. Here's the definition. Let me show it to you. All right, this act of willingly surrendering oneself to another's authority. This is so exciting, isn't it? Like, we get to talk about this subject. And if you go to Romans chapter 13, if you have your Bible open and you go to the header, you go to the title of Romans chapter 13, or you're in your Bible app, what does it say? It says, submission to governing authorities. That's right. I have the privilege of talking about our relationship to civil authorities. Let's give it to the family guy. Um, let's give that, that, uh, that Romans 13 to the family guy to see how he handles it. Like, this is such a tough topic because it's so polarizing when it comes to our relationship with the government, with the governing parties over our lives. You talk about polarizing, this is one of those subjects. With that being said, let me put in perspective for you for a second about what's going on in the context of which Paul is writing right now. If you've been with us for any length of time over this series, you kind of have an idea. But let me, let me paint another picture for you. Are you ready? All right, so this is not a good period of time to be a Christian. And uh, there's a lot of different reasons for that because the emperor in this time, anybody know what his name was? His name was Nero. Nero and Christians did not mix. It wasn't a good combination. Here, let me tell you about this guy, Nero. Let me tell you about the, the, the context in which Paul is writing to Christians in. This guy, Nero, he once burnt down his own city, Rome, and blamed it on the Christians. Great persecution broke out because of it. This guy, Nero, he would burn Christians at the stake. He would use Christians, get this, he would use Christians as torches to light up his garden at his palace. He would throw Christians to the lions, to feed them to the lions. This guy was not a good guy. Christianity did not fare well in this, in this situation. Nero was a, was a, pagan, um, a pagan emperor. He was a terrible emperor. He killed his own family because he was feared that his own family would take the throne, so he killed his own family so it didn't happen. This is the kind of guy that we're talking about. He was manic, so the guy in charge of the government during this period of time is this guy Nero, and this is the context in which Paul's writing to. Get that. Now, we don't live in that. We're not there. You and I operate, in fact, we operate in a liberty that's so excessive sometimes that I believe that we are, sometimes we're completely unaware of it. You know what I don't, I'm not feeling right now? Fear. I'm not fearful of somebody coming into this door to oppress us, to push us down, to keep us from meeting under the banner of Jesus Christ. But there are places in this world where our Christian brothers and sisters don't have this privilege. 
In fact, if, if there, there are places in the world where if Christian groups uh, get large enough and the government takes notice, it, it begins, the government begins to take notice with how large they are getting, they will shut them down, oppress them, beat them, and sometimes kill them because of their meeting. There, there are people, there are Christians throughout the world right now that are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus, and they're trying the best that they can to live out, live out their faith in the context which they are, what, they're, what they're in. That is not us. This should make us grateful. You know, um, if you go back and read our founding documents, which I have over the past couple of weeks, and they're some of the most spectacular things ever produced by man. And you look at the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and all those things. And in fact, they they are philosophical, they're intellectually written, and surprisingly and ironically in our day, they are moral. Now, do we have things to fix? Yes, absolutely. There are things that, that we should do better. Yes, absolutely. But with, with all, that in, all that said, let me say this before I set the stage of, of our relationship to, to the governing parties. I want to say this. I love this country. I love living in this country. I love that I've had family members that have fought for our liberty for this country. But I want you to let you know that I don't place my assurance in the Democratic Republic. And I don't place my assurance in the leaders we have, have had, or will have. I don't place my, my assurance in the Declaration of Independence or the Bill of Rights or the Constitution. I place my assurance in Jesus Christ, who is author and perfecter of my faith. Kingdoms will come and they will go, but God's kingdom is the only one that will last forever. Now, with that being said, how are we as believers and Christ followers are, are we to rightly and appropriately look upon the government and our authority with a relationship to the government? Now, here's my hope and my prayer today. Is that I'll, bridge, I'll, I'll help bridge some gaps to bring us to a posture of humility where we can interact with leaders and governing parties that maybe we, don't dis, maybe we disagree with or maybe other people just in general that we disagree with to bridge the gap to help us become a more prayerful people that are better citizens and good neighbors of the context what we live in. So with that being said, we open up to Romans chapter 13, verse one, and this is what Paul says. If you're following along, here's what he said. He said, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Let's just assume for a second, then whenever he says everyone, he means everyone, right? Let's just assume that, that, that no matter what party that you represent, no matter how much influence you have, no matter how much is in your bank account, that he says everyone be subject to governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. And then he says it again in a different way. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So here's your first point. If you're taking notes, all authority has been established by God. It's pretty simple. And he points to this principle that you find throughout scripture. And again, If you pause long enough to let this sink in just a little bit, it's such a powerful concept and it makes so much sense out of life. It makes so much sense out of history. He has this, this, this principle that God always works through human authority. Always. It's how God designed it. Good human authority, bad human authority. Righteous human authority, unrighteous human authority. Believing human authority, unbelieving human authority, that human authority is, is how God exercises his will on this earth. That, that's, how, that's how it's done. That's how he exercises his will on this earth. And, God is a sta- and if God has established this authority, 
then we have to believe that God has a bigger plan for establishing that authority, whether that be divine order or harmony among people, whether that be spiritual development or protection or guidance for people. But let me just pause here and say civil authority is not the only authority that God talks about in this way throughout Scripture. You go to Ephesians, the Apostle Paul talks about a relationship between parent and child. And he says, says this, children obey their parents unto the Lord, meaning when children are in the house of your parents, okay, when children are the house of the parents, every parent in the room, you're listening, right? They're submitting to God by submitting to their parents. And disobedience to parents is in turn disobedience to God. Wow. Pretty powerful, pretty strong. And then in Colossians chapter 3, he talks about our relationship in our work, uh, employer to employee. When somebody has a legitimate place of authority and you reject that authority, in a way you're rejecting God's authority for your life. Now that's pretty strong. But then he goes on and say, okay, here's a job description for the governing authorities in your life. And Paul puts it out there. He said, here's the job description. Are you ready? Let's read on. He said, consequently, who rebels against the authorities, rebelling against what God has instituted. And for those who do what do so will bring judgment on themselves, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to be punished on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not all, only because of possible punishment, but also a matter of conscience. So he gives us two responsibilities for governing parties, and I'll, I'll get to why this is important in a second. But the first, first is this, punish the bad. Pretty simple. Like the, the, the responsibility of governing parties is to help punish the bad, or, or is to punish the bad, right? That, that, that God uses governing authorities to use, bring justice to those who do what is wrong. Keeps chaos from happening. If everybody um, puts justice into their own hands, could you imagine what would happen? We look throughout other parts of the world, and this is true of some parts of the world, and it's mass chaos. There's no order at all. So, so he's saying, look, the, the governing parties are there to punish the bad. The, the second thing is this, to promote good, to do what is good for the citizens in which it governs. Now, I'll say this, for those who work in government, for those who are governing over people, whatever authority you may, you may be in, Here's what I would say to this, that, that those people will be held accountable for how they govern to God. Just like I'm going to be held accountable for how I pastor and how I shepherd. I'm going to be held accountable for, for what I teach and what I preach here on this platform. I'm going to be held accountable just like, uh, and, and governing parties will be held accountable for their actions as well. Let's move on to verse 6. This is also why you pay taxes. We love to talk about taxes, don't we? So exciting. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. You and I, sometimes we tend to focus on controversies around government work, don't we? The work that government workers do. But let me just remind all of us as we look at this in depth, that of course you know that the vast majority of government work 
they do is provide us with things that we enjoy and we are grateful for. Like the roads that we drive on, services like 911, zoning ordinances, um, international trade agreements, protection from criminal activity with the police, national defense. And this is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, it's hard work and for that reason we pay taxes. Now we can argue how much taxes we pay or if it's too much or too little. Nobody says too little, right? But if it's too much, all those things, Jesus said himself, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But this provide things to support the citizens of the country. He's making a point, by the way, to just how do we be good citizens? And this is what he, write, he writes to the early church to let them know, hey, here's how you be good citizens. And then he gives a job descriptions for those being governed. Are you ready? He says this, do what is right. If you don't wanna be afraid, do what is right. Why is it that we panic driving down the interstate and you see a trooper parked on the side of the road? I mean, you may be driving back from 30A right now and you think the speed limit is 85. Or you say that 70 is just a suggestion and you create your own speed limit. But when you're going 85, your wife says you're going too fast and then you see a trooper, what do you do? You pump those brakes, why? because you're afraid that you're gonna be pulled over for not going the speed limit. Now, I would say that all of us have broken the speed limit at one time or another, but that's kind of what he's getting at. Do what is right and you wouldn't be afraid. So do what is right. The second thing he says is submit. This is a tough one. Because let me give you this overarching principle that we're gonna operate with today. Are you ready? Your attitude and your response to human authority in your life, right? Reflect your attitude in response to your Father in heaven. Your, your attitude and response to human authority reflect your attitude and response to your Father in heaven, meaning that your response to authorities that you can see is a direct reflection to response to authorities that you can't see in this life. And you may be asking, okay, okay, but what if they're asking us to do something that's not right? Like, what if my dad asked me to rob a bank? I got it. Like, I get it. And there's a principle that we operate from whenever this kind of thing happens. All right, and this is the principle. Here it is. When an authority abuses his, God's authority that he's placed or works outside the law, you simply appeal to the next authority, but you still stay under authority. You appeal to the next authority, but you still stay under authority. So the question is, when do I do that? As a follower of Jesus, how, how do I know when to do that? Let me give you three different ways that you know, hey, I can appeal to the highest authority in my life. And the first is this, are you ready? When authorities contradict God's commands. When authorities contradict God's commands, there are different principles that we see this throughout scripture in different periods of time. We go to uh, Daniel chapter three and we get these three guys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three Jewish, uh, Jewish men who, uh, who did, refused to bow down and worship a golden statue that was built by King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was like, you're gonna worship this golden statue. And these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, no, we're gonna remain faithful to God. And even in the face of dire consequence, they said, we can't worship any other God besides our God. So we refuse to worship the golden statue. 
So whenever authorities contradict God's commands. The second way is this, when authorities promote injustice or immorality. Injustice or immorality. Let me give you, uh, paint a picture in this way. There was a there's a story in scripture, it's in Exodus chapter one. I love talking about the Hebrew midwives because it's the Hebrew midwives who were, their names were Sapphira and Pau. They defied uh, Pharaoh's command to kill all Hebrew baby boys at birth. Now here, here's what was going on. So Pharaoh was afraid that the population of the Israelites were getting too big and they were afraid that, he was afraid that, hey, if they get too big, these baby boys are gonna grow up and they're gonna create an army and they're gonna take over this, uh, they're gonna take over Egypt. And so he said, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna make all the Hebrew midwives, they're gonna, they're gonna kill all these baby boys at birth and they refused. They said, we fear God and we're gonna protect the innocent acting in defiance to an unjust decree. And guess what happened as a result of their defiance? There's a guy by the name of Moses whose life was saved and he ended up rescuing or leading the Israelites out of slavery to the promised land. How amazing is that? And then we have Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas were unlawfully beaten and imprisoned in Philippi. And when it was discovered that they were Roman citizens, you may remember the story, they demanded their release and exposed injustice that was committed against them. So we appeal to a higher authority when authorities promote, when authorities in our life promote injustice and immorality. The third way is this, hopefully this gives you some handles. The third way is this, when authorities prohibit the practice of faith. Prohibit the practice of faith. Here's what I mean by that. We got a story in the Bible in Daniel chapter six where King Darius issued a decree forbidding people to pray to any other God besides himself. He, he deemed himself a God for 30 days. This guy by the name of Daniel said, I can't do that. I'm gonna continue to pray to my God for three, three, times of day, three times a day because I can't pray to any other God besides my own. So a faithful servant of God defied those decrees. Acts chapter four, the Jewish authorities commanded Peter and John not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And what was their response? Peter stood up and said, we cannot help but speaking about what we have seen and heard, prioritizing their commitment to spread the gospel of Jesus. And then later on in chapter five, he said this, we must obey God rather than man. Pause there and say, one thing that you'll find in these situations, however, is that they still had a level of respect and honor. Here's your next point. We can appeal to a higher authority in our lives without resorting to hate, ugliness, disrespect towards those positions in authority. This tends to be hard, especially in the day in which we live, in the country which we live in as Christ followers. If we need to appeal to a higher authority, here's the deal. We never devalue the people who are ultimately made in the image of God. If we have to appeal to a higher authority, don't devalue the people who are ultimately made in the image of God, but our response should rather be paint a greater picture of Christ and who he is in our life. Just like in Philippians chapter two, the apostle Paul says this of Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and by becoming obedient to even death on the cross. 
Let me give you this. Jesus' response to a governing system that would eventually put him to death was still a posture of humility. I want you to get that. He was still in a posture of humility, although this governing system would have put him to death. Now, I think it's really fitting that after he talks about submitting the governing authorities to your life, and then we get this very next section, like immediately after he talks about that, he says these words. Are you ready? Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other commands there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. He's really referring back to Jesus as he was asked what's the greatest commandment. Jesus said, love God, of course, but also love people love others love your neighbor you see our submission to God is evident in our capacity to love our submission to God is evident in our capacity to love the capacity to love others is seen as a reflection of God's love working with every within every believer like we we believe that as you grow in your relationship with God the Holy Spirit transforms us and enables us to love others selflessly and unconditionally we talk about this idea of love, like I, I, I perform weddings pretty often and a few weeks ago I performed a wedding. But I always talk about this concept of love in the, in the context of a wedding. And there's four different types of love that we see throughout scripture. There's a familial type of love, a love that a parent has towards a child. It's called storge. And then we have um, a brotherly type of love that's called phileo. It's where we get the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. And that's a brother, to, a brother or sibling type of love where it'd be hard to, to love a sibling and not expect that love in return. So that's a very, ex- I expect this kind of love in return. There is eros or eros, and that's a selfish type of love. That love says this, I don't care who I hurt or what it costs in the process as long as I get what I want. That's a very selfish type of love. And then it, then it gets to the word agape. Agape is a very sacrificial and unconditional type of love. Agape says this, I have the capacity to give and keep giving without expecting anything in return. This is the love that Jesus demonstrated for us on the cross. I have the capacity to give and keep giving without expecting anything in return. And this is the type of love he's talking about here. Uh, How we relate to our family members, how we relate to our spouses, how we relate um, relate to our neighbors, how we relate to strangers or people we disagree with. This is the kind of love he's talking about. And it's through this love that Christians can demonstrate their submission to God because it mirrors the kind of love that God has given us. By acting in love towards others is a testimony about our faith in Jesus. And Jesus says, all people, all people will know that you are my disciples. All people, not just the ones we, we like, not just the ones we agree with, but all people will know that you are my disciples by your love. Meaning the capacity to love is a visible sign of our submission to God and his authority over our lives. That, that love comes from a under, deep understanding of God's great love for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. The fact that he covered our sins for us and for our eternity, it really puts in perspective of how we love others. 
You ever get that? Like whenever you really get down to it and you, you, you understand the magnitude of God's love towards you, it really changes how you interact with other people. It changes how you love other people. So he talks about this idea of love and loving well, and then he moves on. And he talks about how we live. And this is where it gets pretty difficult as well as the culture which, in, the, in the context of which we live. And he says this in verse 11, and do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So set aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently in the daytime, not carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify your desires of the flesh. Here's what he's getting at. Our submission to God is evident in our pursuit of holiness. You see, this verse suggests a genuine submission to God leads to a transformed heart, a commitment to pursuing holiness. You know, it's not a, I have to be perfect. It's a, I'm pursuing holiness. The guy who wrote The, the Pursuit of Holiness, his name is Jerry Bridges, an incredible book, book. And he says this, holiness is not a series of do's and don'ts but it's conform, conformity to the character of God and obedience to the will of God. When we submit ourselves to God's authority, he says, we are compelled to live a life that aligns with his will and his character. The question is, are we conforming more to this world? Or are we conforming more to the image of Christ? And then he goes back to, to Romans chapter 12, and I think he follows this up knowing that he wrote in Romans chapter 12, offer ourselves as living sacrifices, Romans 12.1. Romans 12.2 says this, do not conform to behaviors and customs of this world, but allow God to transform you by the renewing of your mind. See, so conformity is so easy to the things of this, of this world. Conformity is so easy. And recently I was watching a video, and, and you may have seen this video before, and I'm gonna show it here. I'm just gonna set the scene for it. It's an experiment that was done. It was a social conformity experiment that was done by this TV show called Brain Games. And they set the stage for us. It's in a doctor's office and, and there are people in the waiting room and they're all actors except for one person. And it really shows how, how social conformity happens. You ready? Let's watch this. Now she's 
crowd is gone and nobody is watching her except our hidden cameras. What do you think she'll do? That's how conformity works. And before you know it, you're standing for things you don't even know why you're standing for them. Here, here's what, what often happens. In our culture, a lot of times the devil disciples the culture. Here's what I mean by that. The things that the devil wants more than anything is to convince Jesus' followers that it's okay to conform to the patterns of this world. And Paul lists out some things, whether that be sexual immorality or drunkenness or jealousy, that they can all be normalized in our lives. We can settle and think, okay. Or what about this? Hatred can also be normalized in our lives, especially we go into a political season. Even disrespect towards authority. Even dishonoring people for the sake of proving a point can be normalized. Don't conform to the patterns and behaviors of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then he says this, he says, instead clothe, cover yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it's interesting that he didn't say just Jesus Christ. He made an emphasis there. He said the Lord Jesus Christ. He made a point to say Lord. That whenever you say Lord, you're really saying, hey, God, you have power over my life. You have authority over my life. You have control over my life. I call you master. Lord Jesus Christ, not just savior, but Lord. See, oftentimes, whenever we receive Jesus Christ as Savior, He's not just our Savior whenever we make that commitment to Him. He's actually our Lord as well. We're saying, I surrender my will to you. I surrender my desires to you. God, I want you to mold me and make me look more like you. Jesus was countercultural, and He said things like this. Love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Pray for those who mistreat you. Lead with humility. He think, said things that were so countercultural. When we submit our lives to our ultimate authority, God, get this, his desires become our desires, his love becomes our love, and his filter becomes our filter. Ultimately, it is our submission to God that reveals his true nature, displaying his love, grace, and authority to the world. I say all that to say, God has called us to stand in the gap between us and the world. He's revealing to us how to be good citizens and good neighbors, to be in the world, but not of the world. And the best thing that we can do for the world is to look more like Jesus every day. That's the best thing that we can do. Not perfect, but pursuing Jesus to give him our lives and allow him to change us from the inside out and to understand how much it cost him to cover our sins. Live in that and use that to how we treat the world and, and be grateful in front of a world that desperately needs Jesus. So how do you respond? Submission. Say, God, I surrender 
to you. My wills, my desires, my wants, make me look more like you. Let me pray. Father, we understand this concept is so enormous, but it's so simple at the same time. That what you want from us is not just to save us. Yes, we are grateful for salvation. We're grateful for the the fact that you paid for the penalty of sin so that we can live with you forever. You bridge the gap between us and you. Thank you for salvation. But God, we also thank you for being Lord of our lives. For being the person that we turn to for guidance. Thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit. God, I pray that we use that work of the Holy Spirit to make us look more like you, to conform to the image of Christ, to a world that is in desperate need of you. God, we're, we want to be a grateful people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Share this episode with friends and family in your life. Make sure you subscribe to be notified so you never miss a sermon. If you are interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.